0: Here's a quote for you. The disasters are on our doorsteps, and we architects can no longer drive past them. Uh, They're the words of Rory Hyde, a professor in architecture at the University of Melbourne. Uh, It's from an essay called All Architecture is Humanitarian Now. And that appears uh, in a new book. It's called Design for Fragility, 13 Stories of Humanitarian Architects, published via Rutledge. Uh, in, in the view uh, of, of one of my guests, the, these stories are stories of, here's an expression for you, spatial hope. They show us what design uh, can do. When, when reconstruction, when, when the, when the, the, the instruments, the, the bodies around reconstruction descend on a, on a site perhaps in need of hope, inspiration, and, and, and rebuilding. Uh, the book's authors, uh, Esther Charlesworth and John Fan, they're they're specialists in humanitarian architecture. They have many other strings to their bows. Esther, of course, is is founding director of Architects Without Frontiers. Uh, well, John has worked in various design and development roles uh, for places including the World Bank, UNESCO, and, and the OECD. And today, well, you will, find, you will find them both conveniently co-located at RMIT University. Esther, John, welcome. Thank you. This idea of, of humanitarian architecture, for someone who's unfamiliar with that as a concept, who'd like to just give us a quick working definition? Hands up. Esther.
1: Thank you. Humanitarian architecture seeks through design and building projects to improve fundamental humanitarian issues, whether that's what we call now the unnatural disasters of fires and floods, and the often related issues of poverty, conflict, disease, pandemics, sea level rise, and often associated lack of basic Indigenous rights. Mm. So we see that humanitarian architecture has really come into its own since the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. And at that point, people would have questioned those two words going together. But since then, there's been the rise and rise of humanitarian architecture, not only as a legitimate field of design inquiry and practice, but also agencies such as Architects Sans Frontieres International, Article 25 in the UK, Architecture for Humanity, and the not-for-profit I run Architects Without Frontiers. And it's really about architects, landscape architects and urban planning planners working for vulnerable at-risk communities to deliver civic infrastructure projects that suit the um, cultural economic and ecological needs of that community.
0: That quote that we began with, Esther, from Rory, later in that, he he makes the observation that that humanitarian architecture is often not viewed as, scare quotes here, real architecture. What what is is he getting at with that idea?
1: It's a huge issue. I mean, I guess my one-liner is that poverty doesn't exclude aesthetics, When I was working in the Balkans 25 years ago and coming back to Australia and people would say, well, look, Esther, when are you going to get a real job? And the perception still is that this is a field for sort of green, furry architecture, sitting underneath a gum tree in East Africa, sort of singing kumbaya and drawing yellow trace sketches. However, this book seeks to demonstrate through the 13 case studies that these projects are not only sort of extraordinary design, aesthetically, uh, also ethically, but also literally saving lives in the cases of at least three of the healthcare projects profiled.
0: John, is, is is
2: there a big shift here? A big shift in thinking internationally? Incredibly. The world as we know it now is very, very fractured. Uh, we use the term fragility. Mm. Um, generally means that there's a lack of strength in some way or a lack of resilience, be that in the infrastructure or be it in at the community or government level. We often talk about uh, fragile, failing states. Well, we sort of wanted to give a, an architectural take on that notion of of fragility, and very often um, we look towards you know capital A architecture as being associated with the, the stock architects and the um, mega projects. And they're all very important and contribute to the quality of civic life. But if good design, which generally only two to 3% of the population can afford in their homes, can help their mental well-being, If good design can help people be happier, then surely the people who need happiness and well-being the most, are worthy of the skills of the urban designer, the architect and the landscape architect. And that's what Rory meant by saying that mm. perhaps it's not just all architecture is humanitarian, but that all humanitarian issues require architecture. And in in dealing with those fragilities, and and that notion of fragility here is
0: is a complex one and and a very embracing idea. I mean, it's not just uh, an aesthetic response, is it? I mean, the the design can have very concrete and practical outcomes in some of those areas of fragility.
2: Absolutely. And uh, we just think of the fact that in the Ukraine with the war at the moment, 13 million people had to move somewhere else to live, Mm. either inside the country or or surrounding ones. We've got some of our RMIT uh, graduates and our associate professors actually working for UNHCR, both in in Ukraine and on the countries bordering it, actually doing now, not just the design for emergency settlement, but planning for the uh, long-term reconstruction. Huge task.
0: And I think, Esther, that that takes us neatly. I mean, here here is an example of people in need of that idea of spatial hope. Perhaps you could introduce that notion for us, how how that works in your mind.
1: I think the book is a demonstration of spatial hope and hopefully social equity. And the 13 case studies across three continents are structured with a also across 13 at-risk communities Mm. uh, range from uh, Gahinga Batwad village in Rwanda, where Indigenous peoples were displaced by uh, guerrilla conservation programs, to Rural Studio, which is a sort of Mm. icon in in design education, to their $20,000 housing projects for poor communities in rural Alabama to Breed's extraordinary Cabargo House after the fires um, in, in New South Wales. And I guess moving between the sort of academic worlds and then delivering projects, it's always this sort of schism but sort of mutual energy between my day job at RMIT and delivering projects on time and on budget through Architects Without Frontiers is we're interested in the stories of the architects, why they got involved. But we didn't just want another monologue of Ban stories, um, Frank Geary's stories about getting involved in these fabulous projects and the sort of FIFO model that that dominates the post-disaster world. We were really interested in uncovering who these projects impacted and how do we know that they impacted them and according to whom, to sort of dig down a bit dig down mm. a bit more amongst the multiple beneficiaries from those projects. Dig into one of them for me, and
0: I'm, an interesting yep. one here in, in, in Cairns, in, in Northern Queensland, yep. people-oriented design there. I mean, tell us about that project.
1: The, Potter, an extraordinary practice set up by Shanine and Belinda, I think 14, 15 years ago. Shanine has got a PhD um, in Indigenous architecture, so she's sort of well-versed in the subject. It's a um, brain injury clinic for affected, um, largely Indigenous peoples in Cairns, and that project really started with a conversation with the beneficiaries, with the local Indigenous groups about what was an appropriate architecture and landscape and site-based response to that issue, and it delivered an extraordinary project that has really reshaped the health of that community for whom it was destined for.
0: And a a complex set of things to to bring together there too. I mean, there are, yes, design, but also there's there's cultural priorities, there's state health guidelines Mm -hmm. around the building. This is a very, very intricate juggle of, of factors.
1: I think what POD do exceptionally well is get the brief right. What is actually the project about? What are the limits of the design role, and then who were the stakeholders needed to deliver the project on time with the aspirations of that community. And I think that's a common story. The second case study I'd moved to is the Mass Group's maternal waiting village in Malawi. And again, that project perhaps was the only one that had demonstrated evidence by... formal evaluation. A
2: formal evaluation, f- a
1: formal evaluation mm. by the midwife's... The project was built in 2015, telling their stories of how the project has reduced incredibly infant and maternal mortality in that incredible poverty-stricken regional area. So it's not only an extraordinary project, the Mass Group have won awards left, right and centre, but as I said at the start of the interview, the project is literally saving lives and Michael Murphy, who set up the Mass Design Group, was also ahead of his time in thinking through air circulation through a series of courtyard spaces to actually minimise the spread of disease, which of course has then continued over COVID. So again, it's that sort of fundamental thing of how do we know what we know, but it's created an extraordinary project for the women who trek down for days from their rural villages into this centre and they can give birth in a a safe and a minimised risk environment.
2: They even contain adjacent rooms to each mother-to-be for her mum and her other kids. (laughs) And normally when you are located in a small village without medical services, then babies are born that way. However, if you can travel two to three hours to the maternal waiting village about a month beforehand, then all of those things that might go wrong in the month before birth Mm -hmm can be done, you cared for by your own family, and then you can stay for a month afterwards for all that postnatal care. And so that, as Esther said, the infant mortality rate has plummeted and the Malawi government is now rolling that out um, so that all villages in Malawi will eventually be within two or three hours of a maternity waiting village. Tremendous social shift as a result of that
0: intervention. Oh, I want you, John, perhaps take us to another example in, in Uganda, in the
2: project for the Batwa tribes. Oh. This is an inspiration. We often think it's wonderful that the gorillas in uh, East Central Africa can be preserved. But there's a consequence to that preservation. You call it a national park and you've got to move the people out. Mm. These are people, you know, and Batwa is actually the official name for what we used to call pygmies. They were shifting cultivators. They stayed in one place for two or three years before they moved on to another part of the forest because heavy rainfall leached the soils. Their housing, therefore, was relatively temporary. Moved out, they end up living in very much you know, make do conditions on the edge of towns, no work at least no work with the skills that they have from their original livelihoods. And of all wonderful things, it was the safari tour companies that were making an income now from the guerrilla tourism who recognised this. And <laughs> the case study in the book actually was um, the first new village that was uh, developed for the Batwa. It's permanent. The land has been handed over to the village and they've had a vocational education program running side by side to actually train people to be permanent farmers and also to, you know, run some goats and chickens and everything else. And the amazing thing is that when the goats and chickens and so on were then around the village, the leopards would come out of the national park and look for (laughs) breakfast. And so the women in the village built a surrounding fences out of sticks and stones and other things they found and it wasn't until two years later when a drone went up to get an aerial photograph of the village that they saw accidentally that the fence had been built in the shape of a heart. So it's now called the love village. (laughs) That is rich symbolism. I mean, wonderful examples
0: there, Esther, of the way in which architecture is not simply a a project of beauty, that architecture is a social and a political and a a human project.
1: Absolutely. And I think our big interest is bringing sort of architecture to the table, Um, not only on this sort of global scale, but what's happening right now in northern New South Wales, which what's been Mm. happening all year I was up in northern New South Wales about three months ago. A week after I was there, um, I think 47 pods were put into Molumbimbi, temporary housing pods that were sort of shipped in from some mining town. Within two weeks, they were flooded. Again. So it's all very well and good to go, and I did work in Uganda and all over and in the Middle East. But these problems are sort of right here, right now, and what I was appalled by is that that, Local government area actually had no planning scheme for mitigating flood damage. So this is not a sort of an add-on, I think something you do in your spare time. These are critical skills that we see the design and broader project management professions needing. And hence, while we both led the development of the Master of Disaster Design and Development degree at RMIT to equip design students with the necessary skills to undertake these projects because they're right here, they're right now. We've had neighbours flooding in Elwood just three days ago.
0: And recurring with, as we are seeing now, we're increasing regularity. You know, mm. once upon a time, events of, of this sort of magnitude would be rare things. They're now mm. perhaps annual things in some parts of this country and the response needs mm. to be calibrated to that.
1: Well, mm. well, I think it's it's... They do say in the sort of disaster management world that $1 spent on disaster mitigation measures repays $8 in reality Hmm. in terms of infrastructure terms. And obviously there's been a shift of government, but we still have this sort of scenario of big pollies getting these jobs, leading resilience and recovery bodies. And basically designers, architects, landscape architects and urban planners are not at the tables the engineers have been paid to be there. The lawyers have been paid to be there. The doctors have to be there. But we all sort of whinge a lot about it, that we should be part of of the response. Mm. And there have mm. been responses like architects assist and so on and so on. But do we have the necessary skills to do this? This is not the kind of work that you send a graduate architect in to do. The
0: book is Design for Fragility, 13 Stories of Humanitarian Architects. And the authors, well, you've just heard from them. Uh, Esther Charlesworth and John Fian, Um, congratulations you two and big ideas. And as you, as you point out, increasingly necessary conversation. You can find Esther and John at the School of Architecture and Urban Design at RMIT University. Find more great ABC RN stories that
1: take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.